Let us go once again to the Lord in prayer, asking that he would bless our time as we go into his word. O gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have called us once again, not only to worship you, but to gather around your word, to hear your preached word. And so we ask by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would illumine our minds, our hearts, give us open ears, receptive hearts to receive that which sanctifies us, for your word is truth and is settled in the heavens. And Father, I pray that the Holy Spirit would rest upon your people here this evening and be with my mouth as I now seek to do that which no one is sufficient to do. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I know the sermon text here, it says Acts chapter 8, verse 26. We are going to read that passage, but I do want to read one other passage before, just to kind of, uh, which is Isaiah 56. We're going to be reading the first um, eight verses, just to kind of give some context to what's going on here in in uh, um, Acts chapter 8. We're going to return to this passage here in Isaiah 56, but I want you guys to have this passage in the back of your minds. Um, so if you want to um, have a finger in Acts chapter 8, uh, but first we're going to read um, Isaiah 56. And brothers and sisters, I ask that you give your careful attention, for these are the very words of the living God. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness. For soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. Well, this evening we're going to consider the topic of evangelism. And we learn from the book of Acts in chapter 1 how God filled the disciples with the Holy Spirit, enabling them to become his Spirit-empowered witnesses to proclaim and spread the gospel. In chapter 3 of Acts, we learn how these Spirit-empowered witnesses evangelized various people, like religious people who believe they were justified by their works. In Acts chapter 4, we see how as, spirit, how as spirit-empowered witnesses, they were devoted to prayer, asking God to give them boldness to spread the gospel under any and all circumstances. 
But in this particular sermon this evening, I want us to consider how the Spirit-empowered witness evangelizes another specific people group, which, if you'll notice by the title uh, in your bulletin, is that of unlikely people. The Spirit-empowered witness evangelizes unlikely people. These are people who, at face value, we would consider and conclude that they are beyond God's saving grace. When you talk to them, even I'm pretty sure you've had these moments where you just talk to certain people that you think to yourself, I know this person will never believe no matter how much I talk to them about Christ and the gospel. It may be a family member, close friend, or a co-worker, and our heart breaks for them. But, beloved, this evening, I'd like you to reconsider that belief because no one is beyond God's saving grace. No one. As an evangelist, Philip encourages you that even the unlikeliest person can be saved. And those unlikely people not only include, have included us, but they include your unsaved loved ones. After all, if God's grace came to you, why conclude that your unsaved loved one is beyond redemption? As Christians, we should be the first of God's creatures to reach out to fallen sinners, as we'll see in our sermon passage. And not only that, but since we know no one is beyond redemption, we should always be willing and ready to tell others about God's saving grace through Christ. And this is what we learn in our sermon passage from Acts chapter 8, verses 26 through 40. And if you're taking notes, I do have a brief outline for you. In this passage, Luke describes how the Spirit-empowered witness goes to unlikely places. That the Spirit-empowered witness goes to unlikely places. Second, he teaches unlikely people. He teaches unlikely people. And third, the Spirit-empowered witness welcomes unlikely people into the church. And so, before we see how any of this is the case, let's read our sermon passage from Acts chapter 8. We'll be reading verses 26 to the end of the chapter, verse 40. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise, go toward the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, How can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this, Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? Say, uh, does the prophet say this about himself 
or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. As far the reading of God's holy, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative word. And so let's begin with our first point found in verses 26 through 29, that the Spirit-empowered witness goes to unlikely places. But before we understand the significance of Philip's interaction with the Ethiopian eunuch, we must remember what led to it. In chapters 7 through 8 of Acts, the Jews, per- the Jews persecuted the church for their faith in Jesus, leading to Stephen's death, the first deacon and first martyr. His martyrdom first forced the church to scatter outside Jerusalem to places like Samaria. The Jews hardly interacted there since they viewed the Samaritans as ethnically inferior for being half Jewish. But despite persecution, we read in chapter 8 of Acts, verse 5, how Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And this is amazing. We read how the Holy Spirit was with Philip's preaching because, by God's grace, many Samaritans had placed their faith in Jesus. And Philip's ministry was prospering. And if we were him, we might think that this is the only place God's grace operated outside of Jerusalem. After all, the Samaritans believed the gospel. Why abandon such work, fruitful work, I should say, when it had just begun? However, from our perspective, the Holy Spirit does something we'd least expect. Just as Philip's ministry was prospering in Samaria, we read in verse 26 of our, of our sermon passage, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And it's here that I want us to consider how Philip not only goes to unlikely places, but he goes to God's enemies. We know this because we uh, we know he did this because Philip went to Gaza, a region near Egypt's border. Suppose there's anything to remember about Gaza. In that case, it's where one of Israel's most despised enemies of their past resided, the Philistines. Recall throughout the Old Testament how Israel was constantly at war with or under the control of the Philistines. If there was anything worthy of the Philistines, it's that they only deserved God's wrath for their sin in opposing God and his people. And as you're aware, these people, the Philistines, were wicked idolaters. Yet consider God's kindness in sending an evangelist 
like Philip to a place like Gaza. He sent Philip to a people who resided in darkness. So why would God do this? It's because he's faithful to his promise. God says in Isaiah 43, verses 6 through 7, if you'll notice, there's echoes to our passage here in Acts 8, how the Lord says, I I will say to the north, the Holy Spirit commanded Philip to go to the north, give up and to the south, do not withhold, bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory whom I formed and made. God loves to do the unlikely by saving the unlikely. Indeed, God always sends his spirit-empowered witnesses to unlikely places, that is, to his enemies. And the same is true of you. God was kind in letting you hear and embrace the gospel. Recall how you first heard the gospel from someone God sent in his kindness towards you, whether in a worship service, over the radio, or even over coffee. Like Philip, you're now to go to God's enemies by telling them how there's forgiveness in Christ. As God's Spirit-empowered witnesses, you have the opportunity to tell your unbelieving loved ones the hope of salvation. You go to unlikely places, to unlikely people who believe that they're beyond God's saving grace to say to them that such a thing isn't true. And it might have been tempting for, for, Phil, uh, for Philip to conclude the same since God's enemies don't deserve salvation. He could have easily thought, well, it makes sense to some extent that the Samaritans believe since that they're at least half Jewish and they keep some of our customs and our laws and our traditions. But God, why on earth would you send me to Gaza? They're all a bunch of wicked, painful, uh, pagan, sinful idolaters. Why would I waste my time with them? And brothers and sisters, don't we sometimes think and even talk like that when we're interacting with our unbelieving loved ones? Why bother talking to them? They're not going to listen. Imagine if that's how Jesus thought. Jesus didn't say about us, Father, give them what they deserve. Let them go to hell. They brought it on themselves. They're not going to listen to me. No. And that's not what Philip thought either. Instead, notice what he did. In verse 27, it says, And he rose and went. In short, Philip was obedient to the Great Commission. Matthew chapter 28, Go into all the world and preach the good news to every creature. And in God's providence, something remarkable happened. Which, as we'll see in a moment, is not only good news for your unbelieving loved ones, but it's good news for us. Because next, let's consider how Philip encountered an unclean Gentile. An unclean Gentile. But first, what do we mean by this uh, phrase, unclean Gentile? I'm not saying that you should be talking to your friends that way. Oh, here's an unclean Gentile. No, don't. don't. You could call me that, but um, not your friends. Don't do that. (laughs) It refers to someone who isn't an ethnic Jew. But more than that, from the Old Testament... We read how the temple was divided into various sections. 
One section was called the Court of the Gentiles, reserved for those who worshipped the Lord but weren't ethnic Jews. And it was the outermost part of the temple. And the Gentiles weren't allowed anywhere else in the temple. They had to stay within those parameters in that section or be killed if they ventured anywhere else, even if it was just one step. Why? They were considered unclean. Only the Jews had the closest access to God just before the Holy of Holies. But we also learn from the Old Testament, if you recall from our Confession of Faith, reading from Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 19, how God instituted laws regarding clean and unclean things, the ceremonial laws. These laws pertain to all sorts of things, including like not, not touching a dead, unclean animal or even eating specific animals. However, don't always think in moral categories when you see the word unclean in Scripture. Suffice it to say, one could be ritually impure, they could be ritually unclean, but still holy to the Lord. It just meant one was prohibited from entering a sacred place like the temple for a time. However, if an unclean person entered a holy place like the temple, he was not only ritually impure, but now he was morally guilty for polluting God's sacred place. He deserved to die. That's how pure one must be, brothers and sisters, to stand before God. It's that serious. Bearing this in mind, notice who Philip encounters in verse 27. And there was a Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who is in charge of all her treasure. Immediately, anyone reading this in the first century would have thought, this man is ritually unclean. Why? Well, first, he's an Ethiopian. In scripture, Ethiopia is known as the land of Cush, modern-day Sudan. And who might the Cushites be, you might ask? Well, we know, as we know from Genesis, they're Ham's descendants, the worst of Noah's three sons, cursed by him for committing some wicked depravity on Noah. This Ethiopian that Philip encounters is one of Ham's descendants and thus forever cursed for this wicked depravity. And if that wasn't bad enough, this Ethiopian was also a eunuch. This means that not only wasn't this man allowed beyond the court of the Gentiles, because he's an Ethiopian, but he wasn't even permitted to enter the temple under any circumstance. Why? The Old Covenant Law says in Deuteronomy 23.1 that anyone who was maimed or whose reproductive organs were removed wasn't allowed to enter the temple for worship under any circumstance. In other words, this Ethiopian eunuch 
was forever cut off from not only the assembly of God's people, but from God's presence. And we also learn he was a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. This man, in other words, held a prominent and respected position. And we can't know this completely, for sure, or, or, um, with absolute certainty, but this Ethiopian eunuch probably made himself a eunuch to get that position and later regretted it. Why? Well, except for the obvious uh, uh, means of you know, sensual pleasure, this eunuch had everything this world could offer him based off the position he had. Riches, honor, and respect. What's there to regret about that? He had everything this world can offer him and lavished upon him for being the court official of Candace. He had everything, he had all these things except for the one thing he longed for the most, but could never have, God. We know this because in verses 27 through 28, Luke says that he had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and was reading the prophet Isaiah. Notice how this verse goes out of its way to say that the eunuch came to Jerusalem and not the temple to worship. Why? It's because he couldn't worship in the temple. He was forever cut off for being doubly impure as an Ethiopian eunuch. In fact, he might have been attempting to come to Jerusalem, but they were kicked, they kicked him out. Get out of here. You don't belong here. And regardless, this man was desperate to be with God. However, he had a problem his flesh couldn't overcome that prevented him from being with God. This eunuch felt the same way the psalmist did in our call to a worship psalm, Psalm 84, who said in verse 1, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, yes, thanks for the courts of the Lord. Perhaps you have a loved one who feels like they can't come into God's presence because they're too sinful and unclean. Maybe this is how you feel at the moment. I can't come into God's presence. I am wicked, sinful, depraved. This is what describes me. Guess what? Both of you are right. No one, including you, has any right into God's presence. All of us, including myself, without exception, are ritually and sinfully unclean, which is why you and I need a Savior who can mediate for us. But consider God's kindness in reaching out through His Spirit-empowered witnesses to unlikely people in unlikely places. Christ's mercy stretches far beyond by overcoming anyone's sinful impurity and extending his hands of forgiveness as we see him doing with the Ethiopian eunuch. It's as if the Lord were saying in this passage to this unclean man, all right, Ethiopian eunuch, since I know you can't come to me, I will go to you. What grace. 
We read in verse 26. How do we know this? This is the grace of God reaching out to this man. We read in verse 29, And the Spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. God always sends his spirit-empowered witnesses like you and me to the unlikeliest people, like your unsaved loved ones. But they must first be taught that they could come into God's presence through Christ. And this is what Philip does next, and which brings us to our second point, that the spirit-empowered witness teaches unlikely people. And this is found in verses 30 to 31. We learn one thing from verses 30 to 31 on evangelizing unlikely people. And it's that Philip is a kind teacher. Where do we see this? Well, upon hearing the Holy Spirit's command to join the eunuch's chariot, we read in verse 30, So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you're reading? Notice how we're told that the eunuch was reading Isaiah. In fact, Luke goes out of his way to tell us twice, once here and in verse 28, that, um, that, the, that the eunuch was reading Isaiah. Why? Why does he want to tell us this? Well, as you're aware, the book of the prophet Isaiah isn't a short book. It's one of the longest in the Bible. And as beautiful as Isaiah is, it's full of poetic imagery that's often difficult to understand and interpret. I take it from me during seminary, I had Dr. Brian Estelle, an OPC minister, thank you for sending him my way, and he had us translate Isaiah chapter 5 and 27 from Hebrew. I wanted to say that I want to tear my hair out when I was trying to translate these passages. It was that hard. So when Dr. Estelle asked me if I understood what I was reading. I empathized with the eunuch very much. <laughs> but also, some of the best-known passages about Christ come from the book of Isaiah, like the one the eunuch had trouble understanding. But notice something about Philip's question in light of the eunuch's difficulty in understanding the passage he was reading, which isn't evident at first glance. There's a certain amount of tenderness in how Philip asks the question. It's as if Philip were saying, I, I don't think you understand what you're reading, but guess what? I'm here to help you. In other words, as any kind teacher would do, Philip wants this man to understand what he's reading. How do we know this? Well, first, notice what Philip doesn't do. He doesn't belittle the eunuch. He doesn't yell at him for not understanding the passage. Philip doesn't say to the eunuch, Come on, man, don't you know that Isaiah 53 is about the Messiah? I mean, we read it all the time during the Advent series at every church that I preach at. I mean, come on, man, everybody knows that, duh. No. He isn't demeaning in how he talks to the eunuch. He doesn't yank the scroll from the eunuch's hand. He doesn't say to him, give me that. Only clean people like myself are worthy of God's word. Instead, his tone is one of kindness. Philip is a kind teacher, willing to help 
because his goal isn't to win a theological argument or to show off how intelligent he is. Instead, his goal was that of Paul, who told the Corinthians this, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And this is what Philip did. And we need to grasp this, that you and I, brothers and sisters, live in a biblically illiterate culture. Sadly, we're surrounded by people without any, hardly any knowledge of what the Bible teaches. And if they're somewhat familiar with it, they often distort it. Not necessarily on purpose, but because they haven't been properly taught how to interpret the Bible. And I don't mean to puff you up, but they haven't been taught like you have. Most of you, if not all of you, know the Bible really well. You have God's word in your heart and can quote it from memory. You love the Reformed faith and you take the confessions seriously. And while you may be theologically astute, while I may be theologically astute, at the same time, you and I have loved ones who aren't and may have questions regarding the Bible that are simple for you to answer, but not for them. And if we're honest, talking to people who don't know the Bible can be very frustrating. Just ask any Westminster Seminary student. <laughs> but beloved, learn from Philip's example who kindly taught this man. He waited for the opportunity to help the eunuch understand the scriptures for his good, not to win an argument. How rare it is for someone to have correct information while kindly sharing it. But how was Philip being kind toward the eunuch? Well, recall how I mentioned earlier how his question wasn't framed antagonistically, but to kindly help him understand. And remember, Philip does this despite the eunuch's uncleanness. In other words, the eunuch's about to pick up on Philip's kindness. Where do we see this? Well, notice what he says to Philip in verse 31. And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? It's as if the eunuch were saying, well, I'm glad you're here. Thank you very much. How can I Unless someone guides me, are you going to be the one? The eunuch knew Philip's kind intentions and was humble enough to admit he needed a teacher like Philip to guide. And this is important since notice what happens because of this. And this is key for us to understand when evangelizing people we think will never come to Christ. We read in verse 31 a key word. And he invited, invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, anyone reading this in the first century would be shocked at this. We'll find out why in a moment. But when your unbelieving loved ones recognize that you aren't, aren't there to club them over the head with how theologically competent you are, but that they're, you're there to help them understand the scriptures, they might open up and begin to trust you. How 
often our unsaved loved ones already know they're sinners just by being around us. But place yourself in the eunuch's shoes for a moment. He's already an outcast for being unclean. And the eunuch knows this. Then along comes this Jew who isn't allowed anywhere near someone like him, let alone sit next to him. Philip wasn't even allowed to touch this man, lest he become unclean. Yet, Philip still offered to help this eunuch. As one commentator said, neither pride on Philip's end nor shame on the eunuch's end mars the relationship that is developing between these two. When trust is established between you and your unbelieving loved one, it opens them up to the possibility of them coming to church where they can hear the gospel. It'll open them up to listen to the good news of Christ who died for unlikely people like them. They'll see you not as a threat, but as a welcoming, kind-hearted person who exemplifies Jesus' character in welcoming sinners. After all, Jesus has done the same with you. And this is what we learn in our third point, how the Spirit-empowered witness welcomes unlikely people. After stating in verses 32 to 33 the passage the eunuch was reading, which is Isaiah 53, particularly verses 7 through 8, we're told what he had trouble understanding. Verse 34 says, And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Now, we know the answer to that question since we're familiar with Isaiah 53. But before we answer the eunuch's question, let's ask ourselves, why did the eunuch ask this question in the first place? Now, I can only speculate here. And this is why I had you turn to Isaiah 56. But could he have asked that question because of what he read in Isaiah 56? What do I mean? Well, in that passage, Isaiah says salvation would one day come to foreigners. And not only that, but we read this in Isaiah 56 verses 4 through 5. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant. And get this, I will give in my house and within my walls, speaking of the temple, a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Based on this glorious promise, could he have asked this question because the eunuch hoped that the person spoken of Isaiah 53 was the key to the promises of Isaiah 56? In other words, having read the promises of Isaiah 56, the eunuch then turned back to Isaiah 53 and wondered if that was the way that was the person into God's presence, the way God would welcome him, welcome him into his house. After all, the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 is the only sacrifice the eunuch could appeal to to make him clean. Why? He wasn't allowed anywhere near the temple to offer any himself. 
And so, having read Isaiah 53, the eunuch is wondering and, and is possibly begging, is this the way into God's presence? I hope so. Is this the way, this suffering servant? He might have even gone to Jerusalem to see if Isaiah 56 were true. The eunuch might have thought, I mean, if God says he would let me into his house, how is that possible since I'm an Ethiopian eunuch? I mean, I'm, I'm, I came to Jerusalem, they, they kicked me out. I'm not allowed anywhere near. So is Isaiah 53 the way in? And with this question, Philip provided the eunuch the way he could possess the God he longed for. Think about it. This man had never seen the inside of the temple. Never. He wasn't even welcomed there. Yet, God says in Isaiah 56 that he would receive eunuchs into his house and consider them his children. This is important because you and I have loved ones who believe they can never come to God. They think the church only consists of self-righteous people while never knowing that God welcomes the exact opposite into his house. Unclean sinners like the eunuch, like you and I. And this question, and it's this question that allowed Philip to speak about the God what God did for unlikely people like you and me. How he welcomes them into his presence. How? Will we read in verse 35 the classic Sunday school answer to the eunuch's question. Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, Isaiah 53, he told them the good news about Jesus. That's how this doubly unclean man alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, a stranger to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, was made clean and welcomed into God, welcomed by God into not a physical temple, a physical structure, but his eternal kingdom. <laughs> the answer is simple yet profound. It's the answer it's the same answer the unlikely people in your life need to hear from you. It's Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah, the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, who made this unclean eunuch acceptable to God despite his condition. And he's not the only one. I'm looking at a room, myself included, of unlikely people from the, oh, from among the unclean Gentiles whom God has welcomed into his kingdom. And how did he do it? The same way he embraced the Ethiopian eunuch through Christ's death. And thanks be to God what we celebrate this day and resurrection. And it's represented by your baptism. And this is precisely what happened next with the eunuch. Upon being convinced that Jesus Christ is the key to Isaiah 56, this unclean Gentile asks a very audacious question. We read in verse 36, And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? Why is this an audacious question? Well, 
Notice how the eunuch doesn't ask to be circumcised. He can't, obviously. Something more profound is going on here. You see, the eunuch realized that circumcision looked forward to the reality signified by baptism, the Messiah being cut off for his people, the very thing the eunuch had done to himself. Since Jesus was cut off for the eunuch, there was no more need for circumcision anymore since the reality was here. Until this point in Acts, the book of Acts, only the Jews were being saved and thus baptized. And so, the eunuch's question would have raised so many eyebrows in the early church. You mean to tell me this unclean, unlikely, uncircumcised Ethiopian eunuch, one of Ham's descendants, who has no part of our people, is a recipient of baptism and is welcomed into God's kingdom? Yes. Yes. And then the unlikely happened. And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. The eunuch's baptism marks the first step of God's kingdom coming to all the unclean Gentiles, further evidenced by the fact that you are here. Because if you'll notice, what's the next chapter? What happens in the next chapter, Acts 9? The conversion of Saul, the apostle, to the Gentiles. God has welcomed you into his kingdom through Christ, visibly symbolized by your baptism. This unclean foreigner and us included now have a seat at God's table in God's household. And after the baptism, we read in verses 39 through 40 how the Holy Spirit carried Philip away and found himself in Azotus, about 25 miles away to the north. And what was he doing? We read that as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Recall from Isaiah 43 how God says, Go to the north and to the south. And we see Philip doing that very thing. God has been faithful to his promises. And he has reached you here in Redlands, California. Philip continued to go to unlikely places to preach the gospel of God's kindness through Christ to unlikely people. The same thing you and I get to do. Beloved, if God has welcomed an unclean Ethiopian eunuch into his kingdom, what does that mean for you and your unbelieving loved one? And as we conclude, this is why you and I evangelize those who think they can never be saved. We believe the unlikeliest people can become members of God's family because the gospel is for them. And when we see such people coming to church, it shouldn't surprise us. As a matter of fact, we should expect it. God has welcomed and embraced such people, and he still continues to do so today through you, his spirit-empowered witnesses. Blessed be his holy name. All glory, honor, and praise be to our God who evangelizes unlikely people. Amen. Will you bow our hearts in prayer with me? O oh, gracious Heavenly Father,
We thank you that you have stretched out forth your arms through Christ and have received us into your kingdom. Not just a, a physical temple, Lord, but your spiritual temple, the church, the body of Christ. And we thank you, Lord, that you use us to reach out to fallen sinners. And so, Lord, may you continue to do so through us. May you be pleased to use us to leave those who are confused in the way and don't know you. And may we do so with cheerful hearts as we glorify you in all that we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.